eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Brock Bastian is a professor in the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He's trained as a social psychologist, and his research broadly focuses on pain, happiness and morality. His book, The Other Side of Happiness, was published in January 2018. Brock argues that a willingness to experience pain is crucial to our pursuit of genuine happiness, and that our efforts to escape unpleasantness, or seek out only the positive, in fact weaken us in managing life's inevitable difficulties. Negative and painful experiences build meaning, purpose, resilience, and ultimately greater fulfilment in our lives. Brock Bastian sat down for a Zoom chat about his work with Dr. Andy Horvath. Brock, you research in the area of pain, happiness, and morality. Now, I get the pain and happiness connection. Well, I think I do. But how does morality connect into it? Yes, well, that, that, uh, I suppose that assumes that perhaps there's a connection between everything I do, Andy. That's not necessarily true. So um, I, I've investigated many different things at different times and, 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 and have brought them together in different ways. Uh, certainly, the connection between pain and happiness is, uh, is close and um, one of the things that I've been interested there is is to understand what really produces well-being and happiness for people, and in that way to perhaps overturn some assumptions we've got about that, which is that focusing on happiness and promoting happiness is actually a good way to achieve it, and, and that actually in many ways it, it may be our, our painful and uh, negative, um, difficult experiences in life which play a very important role in producing happiness. Um, my, my work in, in ethics and morality has been somewhat distinct to that. However, more recently, I am starting to bring those two worlds together because I do think that to live a good life, um, to live a meaningful and purposeful life does mean to engage with the world ethically, to uh, live with, uh, I suppose, with and through our, our values in uh, connection with those in some ways. And so really to, to live well, we, we also need to do well. And I think that there is a, a nice connection there that we're starting to explore more, more deeply. There seems to be a happiness culture out there and a self-care culture. Um, some of it makes me cringe. Is happiness overrated or perhaps I'm just bitter and twisted? <laughs> I mean, happiness itself isn't overrated. I think happiness is great. Um, I, I like being happy as much as possible. Um, but I, I think that what, what we don't realise is sometimes the psychology behind it. So sometimes in, you know, what we know from psychology is that the human mind often works in fairly ironic ways. And, and sometimes when you focus on something too much or, or try not to experience something, um, it actually produces the opposite. Uh, so a good example of this is the white bear experiment or the pink elephant experiment, whichever one you want, where you ask people to not, not to think about white bears or not to think about pink elephants. And, and ultimately, the people who are trying not to think about those things tend to think about them more. So, so we have this sort of ironic uh, internal process, and I think we've misunderstood that. So when we ask people to, you know, to, to focus on happiness, we promote the value of it, um, it also obviously suggests to them that they should avoid their negative experiences as much as possible because they simply detract from the kind of life that they're, they're wanting to live. But of course, as I just pointed out with the pink bear and white elephant, trying to avoid negative experiences tends to be counterproductive. And in fact, the, the more that we think we shouldn't have them, the more we try and avoid them, 
because we inevitably do have these experiences in life, it's just a part of living. Uh, we, we don't respond to them well when they do happen. We don't know what to do with them. Um, we think they're detracting from our goal of being happy and, and ultimately we become less happy because of it. So it's it's really, happiness is good, but it, we, we need to understand carefully the psychology behind how we can achieve that and, what, and via what processes and also the traps that we can fall into in, in trying to achieve it sometimes too or promote it. What influences happiness? I mean, surely culture must influence it or is it something that's wired into our brains from evolution? Media and our environments must play a role. So how do we make sense of happiness? Yeah, well, as you said, all of those things do. And, and of course, happiness is, is ultimately, it depends how you understand it. So, I mean, sometimes a more narrow definition is just, you know, how many positive feelings do we have from time to time? Um, I think probably a, a better way of thinking about it is, again, as a, as a broader notion um, where it includes, you know, meaningful pursuits, engagement, those sorts of things on top of obviously those those positive feelings as well. But that, that broader definition, I think, works better for really understanding what happiness is. But uh, again, we know that I think that there is a bit of a mistaken idea that you can continually build your happiness and become you know, I, I suppose, ever happier um, and, and, and continue to, to in some sense grow it. And, and I think that probably that's not possible. And, and again, this is where our evolutionary history and, and we do talk about happiness set points as well. We tend to, no matter what we do in life, we do tend to come back to somewhat of a resting baseline uh, around happiness. Um, and that this can be slightly different for different people. And part of that is because we adapt. We adapt to different circumstances. We adapt to different experiences. You know, if you if you go and, uh, and, and uh, rent yourself a room in a five-star hotel, it's going to make you incredibly happy for a little while. Ultimately, you'll eventually get used to it, though, and um, probably that, that initial you know, happiness you experience won't continue. So we, we continually adapt and adjust, and that does mean we tend to return to, to baseline, and, and that is an evolutionary process. It's part of how we've dealt with both positive environments, but more importantly, I think the reason it's there is it's how we've dealt with bad and negative environments as well, because we also adapt to those too. So look, it's a complex picture really that that really draws on and, and is influenced by all those things you just mentioned. I'm going to quote you back to you. I think you've, you said this. <laughs> the other side of happiness is embracing a more fearless approach to living. Unpack that for us. As I uh, explored more um, the, the value of some of um, our, our painful experiences. And, and again, much of my own research is actually just focused on the experience of physical pain, but, but really as an analogue to a range of difficult experiences in life. I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that it's very hard to, to really experience any happiness in life if we don't also have its opposite. Um, and that, that means sometimes leaning into, I suppose, fearlessly in some way, um, those experiences which can seem difficult, challenging, hard, even painful, it's actually through that process that we achieve we achieve happiness. And I, I mean, two, two examples I often use, two things that people might say provide them with a sense of achievement and satisfaction and happiness, meaningful happiness would be Running marathons is one, and maybe graduating from, uh, you know, graduating from a, a course, a good, a good one, a good example for the fact we're here at a university. Um, and uh, if you think about both of those, I mean, the very fact that people run marathons, that they train for marathons, that they uh, maybe they get sponsored for running a marathon, perhaps they feel a sense of achievement, or other people congratulate them for running a marathon. All of those things are leveraged from the fact that marathons are painful. 
if they weren't painful, if they were just easy, straightforward, pleasant, like sitting on the couch watching television or having a massage or something like that. Um, massages can be painful, by the way, but I mean, a, you know, a pleasant one. <laughs> um, you know, th there'd be nothing in there. There'd be no point to it. It wouldn't be valuable. And so we do seek out a, a lot of the things we actually get the most happiness from life. They do incorporate this other side uh, and we just often miss it. We don't see it. Uh, the same thing with graduating from a course. You know, if, if it wasn't for the possibility of failure, Again, there'd be no sense of achievement. We wouldn't feel we actually had done anything of any great value. We wouldn't get a sense of satisfaction. All these things contribute to our happiness. Um, being challenged, you know, being challenged is incredibly important to our well-being and happiness. But of course, you can't be challenged by pleasure alone. Pleasure's never been a very big challenge. It's always got to be something negative we're pushing against, something difficult, something hard, something painful. So ultimately, I think we just uh, have developed some, you know, what I've referred to as blind spots in this space where we don't see... Uh, the, the role of these negative experiences in fundamentally producing the kinds of experiences in life, kinds of events in life that we actually really do draw a lot of happiness and enjoyment from. And so I, I guess that's more or less my position on, on why we need to be able to lean into those sorts of experiences to, to really experience happiness in life. Um, and, and of course, the other part of it is as I said, we adapt and, and endless pleasure uh, eventually becomes mun, mundane and, and, uh, and, and really quite unpleasant in itself. And I think Aldous Huxley's book, The Brave New World, kind of explored that idea of a, a dystopian future where people were able to eradicate all their negative and painful experiences. And the, the, the main character ended up going a little bit crazy because of it. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a world that we actually want to live in. We stop to think about it. We do need those other side type experiences where we we know that they're actually important for our happiness. We just often forget it. and We don't think about it clearly sometimes, I think. Chronic pain, chronic physical pain often affects individuals mm. emotionally as well. It really does mm. lower one's ability to, to thrive and function um, and it's very up and down. How does your work give us insight into pain? And I know from the scientific community, pain is still quite an elusive area. No, I think it is quite elusive area. I mean, we're still, the, the reason being there's a very big psychological, in fact, if not entirely a psychological um, component to, to the way we experience pain. And that means that it's it's complex, like anything that, that, that occurs psychologically, and it can be influenced by a range of factors. But uh, I think I think when, we, when we're talking about chronic pain, we are talking about a somewhat different experience. And, and certainly, you know, my, my position on this is not to say that people with chronic pain should be glad and happy they have it. Of, of course, they're not, and they shouldn't be. It's, it's a terrible thing to have to experience endlessly. And that's, that's I think, the point. It's, there's no variation for people who do have chronic pain. It's, um, and, and it is the variation. It's the, the ability to, to lean into something and then, and then have a sense of relief from doing so that gives that sense of happiness. And there's no relief when you have chronic pain. Um, and that, that's where it's quite different. Having said that, I, I do think, and certainly, you know, in messages and other sort of feedback I've received from people who do suffer from, from chronic pain, you know, they do, when, when, we, when I do um, walk through what are some of the potential benefits, some of the upsides we might get from painful experiences, um, they do, re they do that, that does resonate for them. And, and I suppose if you're going to manage something that's hard, that's difficult, that's even enduring, Simply seeing it as bad, as undesirable, as, as detracting from your life and as having no value at all is not a great way to manage it. So if you can find a, a, little, a little sort of wedge in there where you say, okay, this is, a, this is terrible, but I can see some other things that are perhaps coming around to me. I wish I didn't have this, of course, but you know, given that I have to endure it, 
um, perhaps taking a more nuanced um, and differentiated perspective on, on what I'm having to push through is actually a better way to manage it. Brock, explain some of the experiments you actually do. How do you conduct studies in this area? Yeah, I mean, we do we use different methods, for, you know, for different research questions. So, when it comes to understanding the value of pain, and that's I, I have been um, using and, and yeah, using experimental methods in the lab. So, actually, getting people to experience pain in the lab. So that might be getting people to put their hands into buckets of iced water for as long as they can, doing leg squats, um, even even eating hot chilies. Um, and, and all of these are ways of inducing a painful experience, obviously one that people don't feel that they can't handle, um, but, but one which still elicits the, the kind of psychological experience we're interested in. And, and as I said before, we've used, we've used these sort of acute, physically painful experiences, but we're also interested more broadly um, in, in a range of negative and difficult experiences that people people have in life. So that's been our approach there. And then we can really observe in a very behavioural and, and experimental way how people respond to those sorts of experiences. In, in other work around, you know, understanding happiness norms and how they impact on people and uh, how, they, how they play out for people in their own well-being and happiness. Uh, we often use surveys. We've used some studies, some experiments as well in the surveys. We've, we've run a recently a large multinational survey covering about 40 different countries. In, in that sense, we're able to look at cross-cultural differences in this as, as well as individual differences in it. Um, we, we've, we've also put people into rooms where we've um, plastered those rooms with the kinds of um, upbeat, happiness-promoting messages you might get in some some office spaces sometimes and, and watched people respond poorly to, to experiences of, of failure and setback in those rooms compared to more neutral rooms, showing again that sometimes pushing people to think that happiness is important means that they don't respond so well to instances of failure, which I think is a very important um, an important message when it comes to understanding how we might promote happiness in, in workplaces and even in schools. So a, a really a range of methods and, and uh, sometimes we also... We collect data on mobile phones from people across the um, the day. We might ping them a, a short survey up to 10 times a day, or maybe we'll do it just uh, a short daily diary each day so we can actually pick up these sorts of experiences that people have on, on a day-to-day and moment-by-moment basis as well. So we use a range of methods, and it really depends on the research question and what the best way to answer that is. And what surprised you most about some of this research? Certainly, initially, uh, I, I, mean, I did set out to, I suppose, find this idea that maybe we were overvaluing happiness and that doing so was causing some problems. Um, I, I guess I was surprised to see that it was quite so um, consistent and, and also uh, across countries we find this as well. So certainly it seems that, the, the, you know, and, and the way that we look at that is really more focusing on how comfortable people are with their negative experiences Um also measuring how important they think uh, it is to remain happy. But we certainly find very consistently, I think one of the, the standout findings that uh, really, really stood out for me was when we, um, we used uh, a daily diary technique to look at uh, the depressive symptoms that people experienced on a day-to-day basis, but also the extent to which they felt a certain amount of social and societal pressure not to have these experiences, to remain happy and not to not to delve into this negative side of life. And, and what we found was when we used a network analysis showing, I suppose that allows us to really see the centrality of a particular measure or construct, we actually found that this social pressure 
uh, was very predictive of depression on the next day. Um, and it wasn't that feeling depressed led me to experience more of this social pressure. It was the other way around. So we had some nice evidence there for causality, but also the network analysis showed that this, this was quite a central feature of people's depressive symptoms in our survey. So, so what, I, what I sort of the way I like to think about that is that in a sense that that social and cultural valuing of happiness and the way that it impacts on depression was actually central, not peripheral to people's network of depressive symptoms. And um, in a sense, it kind of brought for me as a social psychologist, it meant I was, I was quite, I suppose, interested to see how the social and cultural element to our experience was actually quite central rather than peripheral. So I'd say that was one of, in that, in that particular domain, of course, in the work around pain, I was always interested just to, I suppose, see the various ways that this, this had positive outcomes. And, and I think initially I, I was quite surprised to see that nobody had really spent a lot of time examining what are the upside of, of negative and painful experiences directly. In fact, most of the stuff that I could find was, was in religious writings. So I thought it was time to do a bit of scientific research on it. Brock, what would you like to activate in society? I'm going to give you unlimited funding and staff. Fantastic. Right. Well, I suppose in this particular area, I mean, look, there, there, are, there are two things that I think would be really, really valuable and, and important. Certainly one would be to start to build a greater focus on some of the, the broader contextual and, in my mind, underlying causes of the mental health crisis we're currently facing into you know, one of, one of the things that I'm quite interested in is, is actually in, in an applied way is organisational culture. And the reason for that is that I think that we know that the job stress is a very important predictor, in fact, quite a significant predictor of the levels of depression, anxiety that we see in any given year. Um, and so quite often we've, we've developed this rather person-centred focus or a medicalized focus on, on these issues. And I think we really do need to start to develop a broader contextual social, cultural uh, way of thinking about why is it that so many people are experiencing um, mental health issues in any given year? What's behind the rise? And, and so I would like to be able to, uh, to really start to think about ways that we could look at those broader issues and, and, and start to address those and think about what we might do that might actually benefit people in that broader sense. But also, I think, and, and, and related to that, I think, uh, you know, as we move forward, certainly our sensitivity to ethics, ethical decision-making, um, how we treat each other, even how we treat other entities like the environment, animals, things like this. This is coming to the fore and, and it's a really important area to understand well because I think that we are starting to really see a lot of, a lot of positive behaviour change and people are, are now becoming more sensitive to a range of social issues on, on, a, on the basis of an ethical framework. And, and, and I think this is a really good thing. But also, also we're seeing some really deep ideological divides beginning to emerge, particularly in America, but it's starting to happen elsewhere as well. And so understanding how to both use ethics to get people engaged in important social causes, but then also how to understand how to step away from the sorts of divides and problems that actually connecting to, uh, to ideological positions can actually create, I think is going to be really important moving forward. And we're, we're certainly, again, seeing that, that ethical considerations are, are, are coming to the fore, particularly for the young, younger generations. You know, we know from from surveys that um, younger generations engage with organisations and business based on their ethical uh, reputations as much as anything else these days. But at the same time, 
this focus can go wrong and it can lead to to greater greater division and conflict and so understanding the psychology behind that and how to how to manage it well i think is going to be very important moving forward and and of course that that all of that feeds into that well-being piece and also uh, the more that people understand the importance of of connecting with those ethical frameworks and um and, and understanding the, the role that living from your values uh, has in producing well-being, um, I think we're going to also be able to look at a broader piece there on understanding what's missing, perhaps, and, and what might be contributing to the, the mental health crisis we're seeing too. That's a really salient point. Next time we pass by a bookshop, say, and we see a book with happiness in the title, what would you like us to think about? Well, I, I mean, I, again, I, I think that that whole self-help, um, you know, area has been very important. Uh, of course, my book has happiness in the title as well, so I wouldn't encourage you to walk right past them, uh, <laughs> selfishly. But I, I think it's been, and I, mean, I think it's great that we're people are interested in understanding these issues um, and and trying to understand how to, I suppose, live lives that are more 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 full. And, and where they're able to actually manage their own well-being in ways too. I guess what I would simply caution is that if you're picking up a book on happiness because you want to set happiness up as a goal for your life and that you think that that's the reason, that's going to be the most important thing for you, um, then that's probably going to backfire. And if the book is telling you uh, that simply, you know, thinking more positively, encouraging more positive feelings and focusing on that as, as a goal in and of itself um, and that that somehow is going to create value for you uh, and will maintain your levels of, of happiness and well-being, then I think it's also probably uh, not true. I think we, when we are looking at um, books on happiness or, um, you know, investigating our own well-being at all, I think we need to look past happiness as a goal. I mean, really, really, if the goal in life is simply to feel good, um, that to me seems a little bit thin on the ground and maybe really, and in fact, I think actually um, the better way to, to achieve happiness is to see it as a byproduct of doing something something else that matters, that's meaningful, that's perhaps engaging in an ethical way in, in the world that we live in and, and making a difference, volunteering our time, contributing, uh, connecting with other people. I, I think these are really purposeful and meaningful things. And, you know, they might not always make us happy in the moment. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's costly. Sometimes it asks a lot of us. But I, I think it ultimately will make us happy and it will be a bright byproduct of focusing on those things. So I guess I would just simply say don't focus on happiness as a goal in and of itself. It won't work. Focus on other things that you think are actually going to make a difference and that are going to contribute uh, to the world and to your own life in meaningful ways. And, and then you'll probably find along the way that you'll notice one day that you wake up and think, you know, actually, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little bit happier than I was. Professor Brock Bastian, thank you. And may your happiness be wholesome and full of pleasant relief. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you to Brock Bastian, Professor in the School of Psychological Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts. Stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 22, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. 
If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.